Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Uh, welcome to the District Church. Um, it's just an honor and privilege for me to be able to come up here and, and just preach God's Word, um, to be able to share with you a story um, that is the greatest story ever told uh, about the greatest person who ever lived involving the greatest event that's ever happened in this world. And so we're going to be looking at this today, but here's my prayer for us today. I pray that the next few minutes or moments uh, won't be routine for us. I pray that the next moments won't be um, what we're kind of used to when it comes to Easter. We come in, we, we sing songs, um, we pray, we hear a message about Jesus and the resurrection, and then we kind of move on from there, and we jump into lunch afterwards, family, friends, hanging out, and then we jump straight into Monday, and we kind of continue on with the, the normalcy of life. And, and I love normalcy of life, I, I really do. I, I think it's a beautiful rhythm that God ordains for us. But I hope this morning that that this story about this resurrection, I, I'm just zealous for more for us when we hear this. Because if you've been in church your entire life and, and you became a Christian when you were six years old and, and this story has been one that's kind of molded and shaped your life forever, I, I also pray for you today that there's a deeper gospel truth that you're able to walk away with and understand about the grace of God, not just what He's done in the past, but what He's doing in your life today and what He's going to do in your life tomorrow. I hope that you are also wrecked by the gospel today. And also I'm praying for the person in this room who, who may think that they know the gospel, may think that they know Jesus Christ, but they don't truly know Him. They're, they're not truly in a personal relationship with Him. And so I'm praying today that, that even though you may have heard these facts before that you may have heard this story before i'm praying today that you actually see it with spiritual eyes and ears where you've seen it in the past with maybe physical eyes and have heard it with physical ears but today i'm hoping that it comes to you anew afresh i'm just zealous for that for us today and 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 i hope maybe you can understand it in this scenario paint this picture with me here's the first scenario maybe you're at home, sitting in your living room, watching TV, and you're watching TV, and, and there's this commercial that comes on, and this commercial is talking about pancreatic cancer, and it's giving you facts about how pancreatic cancer is one of the worst cancers that you can possibly get because it's so hard to diagnose, and once it's diagnosed, it's usually too late to treat, and so usually people have about three to six months to live at best, if not days or weeks to be able to live. And so you see that commercial and you just think, man, what a, what a horrible thing that is. What a terrible, terrible thing. And then it goes on to the next commercial and it's Arby's. We have the meats and all of a sudden now you're like, you've moved on from that horrible, terrible thing. Like you're no longer thinking about it anymore. And then there's another scenario. You've gone to see the doctor, just a typical checkup. And as you're in that doctor's office, you're, you're in the room, you're waiting for them to come and just kind of tell you, hey, everything's good. And as you're sitting down, the doctor comes in and says, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have pancreatic cancer. You've got about three to six months to live. That hits you a little differently than the commercial, right? Because now it's personal. Now it involves life and death. It involves your family and your friends and your reality. And... and the reality is, is in both scenarios, the facts are true. The stories are true. It just affects you differently. I think a lot of times we see Easter like the first scenario. We see it as true facts. I, I believe that. I believe Jesus is who he says he is. I believe he's done what he says he's done. But it just doesn't hit me. And I, as a pastor, have walked through Easter as a believer now for 17 years. As a pastor now for, I guess I'm going on 12 years. 
And in the midst of all of that, there's, there's Easter's I remember and there's Easter's I don't. But I hope this one's just different. I'm just zealous for this one to be more for us. I don't want anyone to hear about the resurrection of Jesus and say, I believe that's true, the facts are there, I believe them, and then just kind of swipe to the next post on social media or wait for the next commercial if you don't have DVR or whatever it looks like. The way I'm going to show you this story, this good news, is by reading for you the Bible. By just reading verse after verse after verse, God's revelation to us. And this is news that he's sharing with us. This is a, a huge commercial movie storyline that he is sharing with us from Genesis to Revelation about who he is and what he's done, what he's accomplished for each one of us to have our lives truly wrecked. To have our lives drastically altered for our good and for his glory. And that doesn't mean that the story that we're going to share with you and the call that we're going to invite you into is that you're going to have the best life now or that you're going to have the greatest life on earth. When I was a youth pastor for seven years, I was, I was kind of given this constant curriculum to just tell students that if they come to Jesus, everything works out. That if they come to Jesus, all of life is a playground. That if they come to Jesus, they will live life to the fullest. And I do believe that in Christ, we have life abundant. But that abundance of life has nothing to do with how much money we make, how big our house is, what kind of cars we drive, how much popularity we have, how much praise we have of our name, how great our reputation is, how many possessions we gather in. It has nothing to do with those things. Life abundant in Christ, and what I'm going to show you today from his word, is why Christ is the greatest treasure we will ever possibly possess. And how when we see him, truly see him in this Easter message, all of the world and its possessions and all of the praise from people begin to fade. They go away. We're no longer excited about those things. So we're going to read from God's word today. God's word, the Bible, is about God. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about God showing us how awesome he is. Not only is it the story of, of him kind of divinely relaying to us, revealing to us, this is who I am, this is who my son is, this is who the Holy Spirit is. But it's also him telling us how awesome he is and to tell us how to tell him how awesome he is. The Psalms, 150 Psalms, are God writing letters to us to read those letters back to God, telling God how awesome God is. Now think about it. Like if I were to do that with my wife, like give her 150 letters. Hey, babe, this is how, this is how awesome I am. And I want you to read these to me every day. This is good for your soul. Like, that's not going to go well in my household, but, but that's also not the way that God necessarily works. Because the way God works is us actually freeing ourselves of ourselves to be all about Him and not about us is the greatest thing for us. So God giving us letters giving us a story that shows us how awesome he is, how amazing he is, that he should be the greatest treasure within our hearts and within our minds and within our souls and within our lives is the most freeing thing for us. And the way in which I, want, I pray to persuade you is by showing you the personal work of Jesus. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, to, 16 today. And so if you have a Bible... Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's some hard, hardback black ones around you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. So please take those with you. Um, and, uh, and if you also just don't want to read or look through them, we will also have the scriptures up on the screen as well. And as you're turning there, I want to again express to you what we're doing. 
you're going to have to make a decision today. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, you're going to have to make a decision today. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, Jesus is either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. Like, we, we all have an opinion about Jesus. You may think, no, I don't, I don't have an opinion about him. No, you do. That's an opinion. Indifference is still an opinion about Jesus Christ. You either believe him to be who he says he is, or you think he's a liar or a lunatic. And again, we can kind of look at the facts about Jesus. Everyone kind of has a Wikipedia view of him. Yeah, he was a man who lived in the first century. He was a good teacher, good prophet maybe even. He had some people that were following him. And maybe you have a thought about those who were following him or small-minded or bigots or just good morally upright people. Maybe you just think they were stupid. I don't know what you categorize for them. But we have to come to a decision about Jesus Christ. As Romans 14 declares, there will be a day of judgment where every human in history will stand before Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord. That's going to happen whether you are a Christian saved by the grace of God or a non-Christian who is condemned by your rejection of the grace of God. There is no indifference. There is no middle. One of the largest growing demographics from, an, from a religious affiliation is what they're calling right now the nuns. And that's not the Catholic nuns. That's the N-O-N-E-S. Where people are saying, I have no affiliation with any sort of religion or, or uh, religious institution or organization that has any type of belief system whatsoever. We are just none. But to be none is just saying, I'm rejecting this which means you are a category. We all have a decision to make about this. What we're looking at today is more than Easter baskets. It's more than eggs. It's more than photo booths. And we have those things. We're going to have an Easter egg hunt after service. We have a photo booth out there for you to take pictures in. We have those things because there's, there's, there's a story that we're celebrating here today. There's a story that we're excited about. There's a story that I want you to not only see, but I want you to see it. I want you to hear it, but not just hear it. I want you to really hear it and see what the lasting effect on your life might be. We want everyone in this room to celebrate. So let me stop rambling on that and get to the Word of God. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district, that's not the district church, um, although I would gladly step aside for him to come in here and physically <laughs> preach right now. Um, this is a different district. This is the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, that's a common question. That's a fair question. That's really the question I want us all to ponder this morning. If Jesus were sitting across from you and asked you, who do you think I am, what would you say? Here's what some said when Jesus asked the question to his disciples. Verse 14. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they're kind of listing off some men in uh, John the Baptist, first century. John the Baptist is actually one of the cousins of Jesus, about six months older than Jesus. Phenomenal backwoods preacher. I love John the Baptist. I come from rural Tennessee. And like when I say rural Tennessee, like tobacco town, we had one stoplight for a long time that never worked. Like you could not understand the way I talked in high school versus now kind of backwoods Tennessee. And John the Baptist was that kind of backwoods pastor. Like he was out in the wilderness who wore um, just like animal clothing and ate locusts and honey as his attire and his diet. Like this was a phenomenal guy who I would probably look at as like one of my uncles. <laughs> but John the Baptist, according to Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, is the greatest man who's ever lived, born of woman. So he's a great man. So some are considering Jesus. Maybe, maybe he's John the Baptist, like just in a, a different form now. 
Others say he's Elijah. Elijah was one of the, the prophets in the Old Testament in the book of First and Second Kings. He was the prophet during King Ahab reign. And, and he was also a guy who didn't die. What? Like, he didn't die. He just was taken up into heaven one day. So they're thinking maybe Jesus is Elijah who's returned, or he's Jeremiah, another prophet, or he's one of the prophets. He's someone who was sent by God to declare God's word and to warn the people when they're off. Maybe that's who this Jesus is. That's what the kind of the murmur, the gossip around town is. This is who Jesus is. Everyone has an opinion of Jesus. You have one right now in your mind. Verse 15, he said to them, Who do you say that I am? So now he's kind of getting personal. It's much less, what does the culture say? Who do you say? Who do you say that I am? And that's actually really important for us. Because here's the reality when it comes to culture, is your culture can also be your parents. A lot of us, and I know this especially from the South, and I'm starting to learn that there's really not that much difference between the South and the Midwest when it comes to religious uh, exposure accessibility to churches we used to kind of make jokes in the south like you have to you have to literally trip over churches on your way to hell because there's so many of them but there's a lot of them here too there's a lot of churches in the midwest and what i've come to find the more conversations that i have with people in the community is that they have a lot of religious history their parents went to church but they didn't like the church that their parents went to so now they're kind of considered de-churched We've left it when we were either in high school and were able to come to kind of a conclusion ourselves on faith, and we just said it's just not for us. Or we went off to college, and as we were in college, in the age of enlightenment, as a lot of people kind of talk, that it just wasn't for me when I started thinking through those things. Or maybe for you, you're still with your parents, and you're still kind of adopting church because it's important to your parents. You come because it's important to them. But for you, you might not actually have a conclusion yet on Jesus. You might not actually come to a place where, what do I actually think about him? I know what they think, but what do I think about him? That's what I came across when I was a youth pastor so often was students who just adopted what their parents taught them. And I'm all for parents teaching their children. We were teaching Ezra, who's three years old, the resurrection of Jesus this morning before we came here. So he's getting two sermons right now because he's in this room. We're all about teaching and discipling. But at the same time, parent, you are not the savior of your children nor can you download it within them to where they automatically become believers. Faith is a personal thing. Faith is something that God enlights within us as He reveals Himself to us and we come to know Him personally. So this is a question for everyone in this room, regardless of, of where you're at. Who do you say Jesus is? Simon Peter responded in verse 16. He said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is a point for pause for us. I, again, I know what I want you to see. I know what I want you to believe. I know where I want you to place your hope because I know Jesus personally. I remember when I was 14 years old coming to know Christ because of a, another person sharing the gospel with me. And I'm in the South. I'm in Tennessee. I've heard this story before. But for the first time, I was able to see it through kind of the eyes of my soul, my spirit, my, my heart, my mind. I was able to see this beauty in this person of Jesus Christ that was not there the day before when I knew facts about him. And for us today, there's something that has to happen for us in order for that to truly come alive. Simply sharing those facts aren't enough for you to accurately answer the question in such a way that you too receive the good things of Christ. Just knowing the facts aren't enough. 
God has to do something in our heart. As he tells Peter here, Jesus responds to him, Blessed are you, Peter. He's basically saying, you nailed it. You got it exactly right. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. I am God. But flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Your parents didn't reveal this to you. Your church didn't reveal this to you. Your works didn't reveal this to you. Nothing from man revealed this to you. Flesh and blood did not reveal this good news to you. It did not reveal Jesus to you. But my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. It doesn't matter how passionate I get today or or if I just spoke monotone this entire time. I've got a major in communications where I took classes on the art of rhetoric and the art of manipulation. Like there's ways in which you can move a crowd and you can like stand over here and then you can come over here and as long as you keep them distracted, they'll begin to believe whatever it is that you're teaching them. And at the end of the day, those things have no warrant for you coming to know Christ unless the Father in heaven reveals this to you. So let's pray for that right now before we continue on. God, we we come to you because we know, Lord, that there is nothing that I can say that would make the light bulb go off in people's hearts and minds. I will preach the message as you have called. I will share the good news of Jesus. I will share the gospel message of his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. We were about to preach that message, Lord, but only you can draw people into your presence and reveal yourself to them in their hearts and their minds so that they can come to you in faith. So that they can trust in you with all their hope. God, we, play. we know that it pleases you to reveal your son, Jesus. Would you do that in this space right now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. After Peter gets uh, 100 on the pop quiz, Jesus then tells him that on his answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. On that answer alone, basically declaring in belief that Jesus is more than a good man, he's more than a prophet, he's more than a good teacher, he's more than a good rule follower, he's more than a morally upright person, he's actually God. That's the statement that he has made. And on that statement alone, Jesus being the chosen one, the Christ, the anointed one, to reconcile sinners in right relationship with God, Jesus builds the church. It's on that statement. You are the Christ. Jesus will build his church. He's not building a physical structure. That's why we don't, this isn't a church. We we just put a sign up over top of the sign that's actually on the building, which is Refinery 46. This is a co-working space. There's a heating and cooling company upstairs. There's a cleaning company upstairs. This is not a church building. But we as the people of God, believers in Christ, have gathered as the church. That's what he's building. He's building a people. Physical structures come and go. They can be be prevailed against. Notre Dame Cathedral. Built in the 12th century, 850 years old. It's gone through the French Revolution. It's gone through a Nazi invasion in World War II. It's sustained through a lot of things, but nearly this week was burnt to the ground because of a fire during renovations. People are literally crying out that they've lost the heart of Paris. 
And I think it's a beautiful structure. I would love to see it in person. I would have loved to have seen it in person two weeks ago. But I would love to see it in person one day. There's a lot of rich history around this facility. But it's just a building. The reason why there's so many people devastated is because they place their hope in a heart of stone. It's a heart of stone. That's all it is. They've not been given a heart of flesh by Jesus Christ, as it says in Ezekiel 36. Their hope is in something that's not alive. It does not have blood running through its veins. Literally nearly a billion dollars within a few 24 hours have been donated for the, literally, as they're calling it, the resurrection of the cathedral. I find it ironic this week. People are trying to resurrect hope in a structure that does nothing for them. Let's look at what Jesus promises to be the only means to place hope in as he builds his church. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. If you don't know elders and chief priests and scribes, those are the leaders of the Jewish religion in first century. They're the leaders of kind of the Israelite, the chosen people of God, people group. He must go there and he must be killed and on the third day be raised. He's just sharing the gospel. The Son of Man, I, I, Jesus Christ, I, myself, I, I have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to have to suffer many things by the leaders there, by the people. I'm going to be killed and on the third day I'm going to rise from the grave. In verse 22, you've got you to gotta love Peter here. He just speaks straight. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Remember, Peter? who was just batting a thousand a few minutes ago. He was nailing the pop quiz. He's gone from blessed are you Simon to essentially cursed are you Satan. It wasn't because Jesus didn't welcome Peter's concern. Like Jesus isn't a jerk in this moment. Peter's trying to protect his friend and teacher, but Jesus is making a point. Peter, the worst thing for you to do the worst thing for you to do is to keep me from the work which will save you. Thank you, Peter, for your concern for my safety. But if I don't go to Jerusalem, if I don't suffer an unfair trial, if I don't suffer a brutal torturing and beating, if I am not taken and nailed by my wrists and feet to a wooden cross, and if I'm not hung on a tree and considered a curse for your sins, if I'm not experiencing some of the worst physical pains imaginable, if I'm not anguishing in the worst psychological torment ever by having a billion sins placed on my soul, if I'm not abandoned by my closest friends and family and ultimately forsaken by my Father in heaven, if I don't do these things, Peter, it will be your suicide. Peter, if I don't die, you will. This is what he's preaching. Peter's rebuke would have been his suicide if Jesus listened to him. Instead, Jesus gives him the gospel. This is what has to happen. Because this is the gospel. That in the beginning, God created everything from nothing. That he created the earth, the waters. He created the sun, the stars, the universe. He created the plants, he created the animals, he created everything. He looked at it and it was good. And then he created us. 
He created male and he created female in Genesis 1 and 2. He created them in his image. We're the only thing in all of creation bears the image of God. Everything else has the fingerprints of God all over it, but we bear his image. We reflect him. And he looked at us and he said, we are very good. We're the crown of creation, as he says. Remember, the Bible is not about you, but you are the crown of creation. And then in Genesis 3, we literally have two chapters of harmony, something beautiful, and then we have Genesis 3. Satan comes into the garden where Adam and Eve were living. And he just lies to them. He deceives them. He says, this God who's created you, don't you want to be like him? Remember, we already are. We're image bearers. But no, Satan's saying there's always more. Don't you want to be like him? Disobey him. Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing God told you not to do. Be like God by doing something that's against him. Take it into your own hands. And we fell for it. Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, they fractured everything. Everything we look at today, society, community, culture, creation, relationship, marriage, children, family, career, job, ambition, passion, anything and everything that is within creation is fractured. It does not look the way God intended it. And because we broke it from Genesis 3 to Christ on the cross, God's been working a plan to fix it, to restore it, to reconcile. And this has been his plan all along. Genesis 3 didn't happen and God was like, mm, didn't see that coming. What am I going to do now? He knew exactly what he was going to do. Because in Genesis 3, God comes into the garden he deals with Adam and Eve, but he also deals with the serpent. And he comes and he preaches what we call the Proto-Evangelion, which is the first gospel. That there will be a man who will come, born of the woman. You will bruise his heel, but in the process, he will crush your head. This is a picture of Jesus being bruised on the cross as he is ultimately crushing and defeating death, sin, and evil. So all has been created good. We broke it and fractured it. And then God sends Jesus, John 3, 16, as it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life should not remain fractured, should not remain broken, should not remain apart from God, but rather be brought back into relationship with God like it was before sin entered into it, but actually better. And the reason why it's better is because of Jesus going to the cross and taking every single sin, every single fracture, every single brokenness, every single curse, and placing it on himself and bearing that weight. And then dying means that he's paid the penalty that we all owe. And because in three days he then rose means, as we are celebrating today, that he has defeated it and is more powerful than sin, death, and evil, that it cannot hold him. And because of that, when we come into relationship with Christ, we will never again 
choose sin over Jesus. Ever. Because we now have the one who only has the power to do that. Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. This is what's happening on the cross is that all of your sin that has been with you forever, like the moment you were born, because of Adam and his sin, it's passed down to every human that exists. You didn't like become a three-year-old and then all of a sudden now started sinning. I've got two kids, three and one. They sin as soon as they come out. <laughs> it's not something they learn. It's something they are. And Jesus takes that. He takes that sin on the cross and he bears the weight in order that he might then give us his righteousness. You see, sin calls God into question. What's he going to do? How's he going to respond? What's he going to do with me? Is he going to be a just God who deals with this, or is he just kind of going to sweep it under the rug and say, it's okay, guys, don't worry about it. Sin, every single sin, will be accounted for at judgment. Our sins are either paid for on the cross or they're paid for in eternal damnation. Seven things that are important for us when it comes to this Sunday morning. Number one, God has defeated death for you. Satan accomplished or conspired with Judas, Pilate, and the Jewish leaders to kill the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. As Acts 3 says, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And if you believe in him, death cannot hold you either. As Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. There's a resurrection for us because of Christ's resurrection. Two, God has purchased all his promises for you. 2 Corinthians 1, 20 and 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. God has promised us a lot of things when it comes to knowing Christ and what we receive in knowing Christ. Namely, there will be a resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. He's the first one of many brothers to receive a glorified body at his resurrection. He didn't look the same way he did going into the grave as he did coming out of the grave. This glorified body is something that we are promised to that he purchased at the cross. So your kind of hoopty, broken down body that you have right now, and I don't even care if you are in college and you're like at your prime, that goes away. I'm 32 now, and I know that like 27 was kind of cruising altitude, and it's been a descent since then. <laughs> That's going to happen for all of us. I don't, know, I don't care how much spinach or kale or Pilates or, or Botox that you do, it goes bad for us. But there's a new body that he purchased for us that we will receive in glory one day. Another thing that he's also purchased for us, a promise to us, is an inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ, as Romans 8 says. That means the Father provides something for the Son that is all authority in heaven and on earth, possession over heaven and earth. It's all his. And he tells us that we are co-heirs with Christ. We get to receive all the possessions of heaven and earth. What God is saying in adopting you as his sons and daughter is he's bringing you into his family and he's taking you to his backyard and he's saying, you see everything? Man, enjoy. Enjoy. That's the second thing. The third thing, and I think it's the best thing, 
is who cares if you get a glorified body and who cares if you get the inheritance if you don't get him? The greatest thing that we receive that is purchased by God at the cross is relationship with him. We get God. We get God. Number three, God will judge every sin committed by you or against you. It's all going to be judged. Sins you committed at judgment day, Jesus is going to stand in your place and say, everything that they've done wrong, past, present, future, at the cross, paid for. Come on in. Or, I never knew you. You will pay for your sins. Depart from me. Every sin is purchased, paid for, for those who believe. For those who are in Christ. So we get to rest. In knowing that I don't have to earn that. I don't have to build my life trying to figure out good and bad. And outweighing the scales to make sure that when I get to heaven. My account is good. Or it's current. There's no past due statements that are coming to me. I'm not having to worry about those things. When I get there. I get to look at God. As he is judging me. And I get to stand as a co-heir with Christ and Christ looking at God and saying, he's covered, paid in full. Come on in and enjoy. That's a rest that only those in Christ experience. And to be honest with you, that's the grace that separates us from every other religion and every other belief system. Because every other religion, every other belief system has this system of structure where you have to build or earn or work your way to make sure that God lets you in. And for us, Christ on the cross, as we looked at on Friday, it's finished. It's finished. It's done. Number four, God will restore everything wrong or broken in front of you. The Apostle Peter calls his fellow Jews to Jesus saying, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He's promised that he's going to restore all things. So like even heavens and earth are kind of hoopty right now. There will be a day where there will be a new heaven and a new earth through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that he has purchased that we will get to enjoy. He's going to restore all things. Number five, your bondage to sin is great, but God can really set you free from it. This is a here and now. Man, so many times we fight this battle. I'm just going to sin because I'm a sinner. Navel-gazing, walking around. Christ in you purchases for you the ability to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. And I'm going to show you how here in a minute. Number six, no evil can disrupt God's good plans for you. The death of Jesus looked like the single greatest defeat God's people had ever experienced. It looked like Satan won. He got what he wanted. Jesus is a hindrance to me. Let's kill him. Let me conspire with Judas, one of his own, and let's go after him. Let me talk blindside. I watched Survivor. It was a blindside. Satan thought he figured it out. Instead of ascending to a throne and conquering his enemies, the promised king had been humiliated and crucified. But at the precise moment when it looked like evil had won, God was wielding every ounce of wickedness to accomplish his greatest victory. What we intended for evil, God intended for good. What we meant for evil, God meant for good. If you know the story of Joseph and his brothers who hated him, who tortured him, who threw him in a pit. 
God looks at this story and he says, what they meant for evil, Joseph, I'm going to use for good. They cast you out. They sold you off into slavery. God raises up Joseph to a place where he can actually then go and provide for his brothers who tortured him, left him for dead. Sounds kind of funny for us. Our sins that put Jesus on the cross, God goes and uses to actually be our redemption, to be our salvation. If you don't believe me, this is Acts chapter 2. Jesus of Nazareth delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus' crucifixion was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God is sovereign over every evil act that he is working so that we can say in Romans 8.28 he is working all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Man, God's amazing. Jesus is amazing. How do we respond to this good news? If Jesus... Is he still just some mere facts you may or may not have heard before? Does this news affect you in any way? Is God stirring in your heart right now? You have to do something with this news. You can't walk out of here just thinking, that's great. It's good for you. Really hope it works out for you. Well, we know in John 3.16 it says, if you believe then it works out for you. But here's my question about this idea of belief. Do we believe based on how Jesus intends us to believe or do we believe based on something that's just kind of fluffy? What is belief? And Jesus is actually going to teach us in these next couple of verses what he intends the word belief to be filled up with. There's an essence around belief that is greater than just mere intellectual assent. I think it's right. I believe that's right. It's more than that. I'm not not adding to what we should do. I'm just saying that there's an embodiment of belief that has to be there. There's an essence of belief that has to be there that shows that we believe. That shows that we're actually a part of the family. This is what he says when it comes around this idea of belief. Jesus told his disciples in verse 24 of Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Greek there actually is kind of double follow. It just The ESV didn't want to write it out that way. Thought it maybe sounded funny, so he said, come after me. But really it should read, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to follow him, if you want to believe him, there must be a denying self and a denied self. There must be a denial of who you are apart from Christ and a complete death of who you are apart from Christ. I must deny myself and I must die to myself in order for me to believe in who Jesus ultimately says he is. The repetition here is not a mistake. What this denying and denied self looks like is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I, as in Dwayne, who is a sinner. Because we have either one of two identities. Again, there's no indifference here. There is either Dwayne, who is a sinner, deserving the wrath of God, or there is Dwayne, who is a saint, deserving the righteousness of God because of Jesus' work. Dwayne, who is a sinner has to be crucified with Christ, denied, 
I have been crucified with Christ. That is spiritually to put to death the sinner in me. So that for I, sinner Dwayne, no longer live. I deny my old self. No more dead Dwayne. No more sinner Dwayne. You are dead. So that Christ may live in me and through me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20. There has to be an exchange. I have to put myself to death. I die so that Christ might live in me. Now, all we have so far is a denial of self and a death of self that still doesn't help us fully. That doesn't help us get to Jesus. I know plenty of people, again, who are navel gazers, constantly self-loathing. That's not what I believe denial is. It's not just constantly saying, I'm a horrible person. I'm a sinner. It's not confession every single day in the sense of, I am condemned. It's not just that. It's what he says next. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a self that aims to save its life in this world, aims to maximize all that this world can give, loves this world. That's the self that must be denied. If you look at possessions and praise, and those are the two kind of categories that I think we all fall into. We either love possessions in this world, or we love the acceptance and praise from people in this world, popularity. If our self is loving those things, that's the self that has to be denied, put to death, rid of. Dwayne, you have to go for, if I love those things, I will actually lose my life because I'm placing hope in those things rather than hope in Jesus. But whoever loses those things for the sake of Christ will find their life, will save their life. The first self is going to be lost forever. Whoever would save his life will lose it forever. The second self is going to live forever. Who loses his life for me will save it. Don't miss the implications of the words that Jesus says on account of me or for the sake of me. It's if Jesus is your treasure You will deny yourself. You'll deny possessions. You'll deny praise. You'll deny anything that is trying to take you away from Jesus. You'll say no to those things as you are saying no to you that wants those things. Jesus provides this for us. And then again... He even kind of goes and clarifies even more what he's talking about in that. In verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Possessions, stuff, money, houses, books, computers, land, businesses, stock. Suppose your heart considers the worth of Jesus and considers the worth of possessions The gladness you could have in Jesus and the gladness you could have in possessions. Suppose your heart looks at those two things and prefers possessions over Jesus. And what Jesus is getting at here is that you excelled at possessions. You've actually in life become so successful at gaining possessions that you've gained the whole world. You own it all. I'm not just talking like Apple and Google and Amazon. I'm talking everything. You own the U.S., you own England, you own China, you own all land, all water. Every stock, NASDAQ, everything is your possession. What will it profit a man if he gains everything yet forfeits his soul? Think about it this way. You've gained it all and then you die. And instantly you realize when you come into that judgment that gaining everything was suicide. And what are you going to try to do in that moment? Suppose facing Jesus, you say, I see you now. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. I see that you are Lord. I'll give you everything I have. Every possession, every country, every organization, business that I own, it's yours. It's it's all yours in exchange for my soul. 
What do you think Jesus is going to respond in that moment? I think he would respond this way. You would try to buy your soul with the very possessions that destroyed your soul? The very possessions that you preferred over me? Christ replacing, Christ belittling idols? Have no currency in heaven. And he will turn his face away and you will perish forever. What you just tried to do with your money... That ransom has already been paid at the cross. There's nothing else that we can use in heaven to try to buy our way into it. Jesus has paid it. That's why Easter is so important because the message is this. There's nothing literally, even if we gain the whole world and try to go to heaven and say, Jesus, look what I have. Please, can I purchase my soul? No. No currency. Doesn't work that way. What Jesus is responding is, you prefer not to be with me. You prefer to make crystal clear that you are not elect That's what you meant to do. You were going to go with the alternative treasure. I was not your treasure. Please, please don't do that. That's verse 26 where Jesus is showing that his gospel on account of himself is more precious than things, possessions, health, wealth, prosperity. It's all worthless if you don't treasure Jesus above all. What about this idea of praise from people? The Gospel of Mark gives us a little more definition to this final verse. Mark 8.38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is making clear there are two audiences for our lives. First, the adulterous and sinful generation. It's not adulterous just because they sleep around. It's adulterous because they see the world and they prefer that over Jesus. Therefore, they sleep around. They prefer things. They prefer creation over creator. It's an adulterous and sinful generation. The other audience is threefold. The Son of Man, the glorious Father... And I'll say millions based on the picture and imagery of angels in Daniel. Millions of holy angels. So the question for us is, whose approval do we crave most? Whose praise are you most desperate not to lose? And whose presence do you fear most being shamed? Which relationship is most precious to you? Which brings us back to verse 25 in our Matthew text. For whoever would save his life will lose it. That is, whoever lives to save his reputation, to avoid shame, to save his acceptance to the people that matter to him, namely an adulterous and sinful generation, will lose his respectable and popular life. You'll lose it at the expense of trying to save it. But whoever loses his life, loses popularity, loses reputation, loses those things, on account of Christ, will actually find life. This is filling up the word belief here. If I believe in Jesus, it means Jesus is greater to me than possessions. He's greater to me than praise from other people. So therefore, I'm willing, because of belief in Him, to put to death anything within me. Possession-loving Dwayne, put to death. Praise loving Dwayne, put to death. Deny it. I deny you. You're dead to me. Because what I want, what I believe, is Jesus is the greatest thing for me. And because he's the greatest thing for me, he's my greatest treasure. I don't care about possessions. I don't care about praise. You can think of me what you want to think of me. I care about what Jesus thinks. You can give me whatever you want. It doesn't matter. I care what Jesus gives me. Because Jesus is my greatest 
treasure. So here's the sum of it all. Matthew 16, 13 through 27, his first news. Greatest news in the world. Son of man, Jesus Christ must suffer. Must suffer because of our sinful state. He must suffer it. Must be rejected by it. Must be killed and must rise again. The merciful, sovereign, all-controlling God planned it. Prophesied it. Performed it. Suffering, rejection, death, resurrection, all God. So that he could provide the ransom for the many. For those that when he asks, who do you say that I am? They begin twirling around their mind. Man, uh, um. Man, I really love possessions. I really love praise. I, I really love those things. I really love this life. But, but Jesus, you did this? You suffered? For account of my sin? You, you died because I deserve death? But I still love these. But you did this? And as God's revealing that news to you, belief is filling up. Faith is increasing. And we come to a position right now where we can choose Jesus or the world. Jesus or the world. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. I want freedom. I want to know him. I want to know this God who's not willing to let me stay a sinner. But since his son Jesus, because of his love, and crushes him so that he doesn't crush me and saves me from his wrath so that I might get to experience eternity with him in full joy, full acceptance, Full pleasure and satisfaction. Today, right now, I'm going to have the band. Go ahead and come on up. Today, right now, we're going to do something. Like, we're, we're not a typical church that does, like, altar calls, invitations, whatever you want to call it. Because at the same time, I can't manipulate you to make a decision. It's just, I give you the facts. I pray God's revealed it to you. And you have a decision. Jesus world, Jesus world. If you've never chosen Jesus and responded in faith, believing him, he did suffer for me. He did die for me. He did rise for me so that I could come into relationship with him and give God all glory, all praise, all honor that he deserves. It's all for him. If you want Jesus and you're responding in faith right now to trust in Jesus, then I just want you, as, as they're playing a song and as we're partaking of communion here in a moment, I want you to either tell the people that you came with, I want Jesus, I trust Jesus, I believe in Jesus. Like there's no magical prayer to pray. It's just a, do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Is he your greatest treasure now than he was yesterday? Do you love him now where you didn't yesterday? Or an hour ago. If Jesus is who you want, talk to the person that you came with, or as we're partaking of communion, come down and please talk to me and just I want Jesus. I deny myself. I want Jesus. What's that look like? I want Jesus. Come talk to me or a person that you came with, or someone that you're comfortable having a conversation with. Because one thing that's clear that Jesus does, is he says, those who are willing to deny me before men, I'm willing to deny in heaven. The positive side of that is those who are willing to confess me before men, I will confess in heaven. We will celebrate amongst the angels. We will celebrate amongst the Father and the Holy Spirit that you have trusted in Jesus. And so in this moment, I'm actually going to have you go ahead and stand. The family of God comes together for worship, which is what we've been doing. We're worshiping together. 
We're worshiping Jesus because of what he's accomplished for us. And in worshiping him, we do this thing that we call communion. Communion is just a story, an image. Something that we do to remember what Jesus did on Friday. 2,000 years ago where he broke his body, he shed his blood, he suffered, he was rejected, and he died a gruesome death to remove sins from those who trust him, who believe him. So as a body of believers, as the church, we're going to celebrate that by going back and breaking bread and, and drinking juice to remember him breaking his body and shedding his blood. We're worshiping him, we're thanking him for this because that is the only means by which we come into the family of God. It's not a certain amount of money that you give or a certain amount of things that you do or don't do. Like it's, it's not about those things. It's about what Jesus has done that allows us into the family of believers. So we thank him through communion. And as we partake in this time of communion, again, if you are trusting Jesus for the first time, tell the person that you came with, come down front, talk to me, and let's confess it before before each other. Let's worship Jesus. Let's get after Jesus in this moment. I'm going to pray for our bread and juice, and then we will partake of communion. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for this Easter message of your son Jesus coming to earth as God in the form of a man to live the perfect life that we could not live in order to die the death that we deserved to then be raised in three days guaranteeing for us who believe resurrection from death and brought into a new life. As we break the bread, Lord, let us remember and worship Jesus breaking his body. And as we drink the juice, Lord, remembering him shedding his blood for the removal and forgiveness of our sins so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but rather there is life and life abundant. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's partake of communion together. And if you have trusted Jesus for the first time, tell somebody. Tell somebody. Let's take communion. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church. At